0: Uh, Good morning, welcome to 2023, um, our first podcast of the year. Uh, We did do a few podcasts uh, in 2022, but really didn't get in the swing of things. Uh, This year we're going to take a slightly different approach, uh, picking up on articles about mergers and acquisitions we see in the press uh, every day. And uh, our usual group of people from across the world, uh, we've got people from New York through to London and uh, San Francisco and over in Asia with Singapore. Uh, Given the time zones, uh, the group of people joining us through the year will change as things ebb and flow. Uh, To start off with today's call, it's just uh, myself and Ben. Uh, and we've got an article uh, that was published on Christmas Eve, no less, by uh, uh, Financial Times on the Lex Populi column uh, titled Bolt-on Takeovers Beat Betting the Ranch. Um, it's a little something I sent
1: over to you, Ben. What did you think? Um, yeah, obviously, classically on any live podcast, the dogs go mental in the first half of it. So apologies for you're meeting Mac and Henry as well as part of this process. They will indeed be joining the podcast on a regular basis. So look, um, um, uh, so there are additional members. They don't get paid for the job, they, well, they get fed, but that's pretty much it. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I love the FT. I read it every day, and uh, and it's got some incredibly clever clever writers in it. And one of the challenges about doing this sort of analysis is. Um, the extent to which you want to criticise or challenge the writer or the style of it or the content. I think we're going to have to de- manage a sort of delicate balance between those two aspects of the process. Um, and Lex is a you know, very popular column. It's, it's well written. It's got some good research behind it. But whenever they go into m and I think this is a general issue about m a generally, is that um, the commentary is either very high level uh, and not necessarily very insightful, or it sort of points to some really fundamental issues that the sector's had for a very... or the approach that the, 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 uh, the activities had for a very, very long time. Um, and, I, you know, on, in paragraph three, and I'm not going to write about it, it talks about the Vodafone deal in, on management in 2000. You know, what does that say, that we're still commenting on an acquisition that took place 22 years ago as an accurate and insightful view of what we're going about, how we should be doing this going forward. Um, And I think there's two things about that that just immediately jump at me. The first one is that, um, you know, reporting on transactions is something which is difficult because the measures are so random. I, I suspect there's a combination of the fact that um, you know, in some cases, CEOs and CFOs probably do want to obfuscate a little bit because it's not necessarily the easiest and best result to uh, to re- report to. And so perhaps we still deal with things where there's a bit of a historical um, knowledge base. The case studies uh, are still very old, but they're there. But we haven't got anything new to talk about because no one really wants to talk about this stuff. Right. So, So I think it's two things. One is it's really hard to measure. Right. And you know, talk to any CFO about how they measure revenue synergies, and it 's always a good fun conversation. They tend to go a little bit pale or or uh, so that 's the first thing right um, and the second thing is the results are not that good, uh, so we 're left with this sort of weird thing where I think you know two thousand and twenty two there were i 'm not making this number up I think something like four trillion dollars worth of acquisitions that took place right, and yet we're still referring to uh, acquisition history that was 22 years ago bonkers right
0: I mean you certainly need um, a good point. you need time to evaluate a deal so I could certainly imagine we'll be looking back maybe you know two years five years that deals have been completed to see what's happened and then you've got the time for for those that, that data to be published and people to understand it um, but it is I mean I love the idea of actually real true scientific insight into a field like m&a is just impossible where you, you, you can't do uh, bl- double blind trials you can't have um uh kind of separate out uh, the m&a activity from everything else that's going on in the market or within the company
1: correct and i think you know that comes to the sort of second point which again is something that i think is really strictly str- str- there was a piece of mckinsey research which i was extremely unhappy about in 2016 that came out, which basically looked at share price as being the only measure of success or failure. Um, again, in this article, they talked to the AB InBev deal to buy SAB Miller, SAB Miller in 2016 for £70 billion, and the comment is shares of in, in the world's biggest brewer have never recovered. It's just a nonsense measure. I mean, there is so much else that's going on in the marketplace that might impact on share price. I, I just don't see how you could possibly connect those two things, uh, uh, it, it, which you know I'm not helping by providing a solution. By the way, I just don't think that's a that's no, a simple. No.
0: Idea. Uh, what's the what's the counterfactual? Uh, what would have happened if it, if they hadn't the um, merger? Correct. Correct. Uh, Correct. I suppose this, the the thing that caught my attention is this uh, this question around what's a good deal to do, um, and. It says kind of both headline, both on takeover is beat betting the ranch. And so the idea that small incremental deals are better than big deals, and I can see how that is um, something that that, that looks um, looks obvious given that you know you, you see these big deals that have failed and that you know uh, hit the headlines. But when I think about integration, the deals I worked in, the the larger deals actually the integration challenge can be a lot lower you've got um two sets of organisations that are used to working in a large company. The values might be quite similar, the, the organisation structures aren't going to be a million miles apart. You know, most large companies are running very similar similar ways, so cultural challenges and organisational challenges will be lower, and just the sheer resource they've got to be able to, and the maturity of the systems would like to be greater. Whereas when you talk of these small bolt-on deals, you might have a family-led and family-owned business that's been around for 30 years that's suddenly going into a large corporate. I mean, that is a massive cultural shock You've also got the leaders of the organisations that, that will be the primary shareholders and the reason they're selling is to get their exit so their eyes on the door from the day of the deal is done um, and the impact of those, that person leaving or the impact of that person and how they have to try and adapt to the new culture is a massive challenge.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, again, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I mean, I know, I know, we're, you know, from a, from a from the grand perspective of the FT, a forty million deal looks like nothing. But if it's a forty million deal that's wrapped into a, a twenty-five or thirty or forty million pound or dollar company, then it's doubling the size of the business. It's the biggest thing they could possibly ever have done in their lives. So for them, the scale of this transaction is absolutely huge. It's just that there aren't that many zeros attached to it. I mean, it's just a nonsense way of measuring it you know and equally if hsbc decides it's going to buy a bank in indonesia for three billion quid it might not be a very big deal in the context of you know it might be a big deal from a numbers point of view but for hsbc it might be a tiny transaction because they're you know a multi hundred billion type business so it's just a bad way of measuring uh the way that we think about Uh, transactions Um, I think you're right I think you know there's it's one of the great myths that we've talked about before you and I David about the fact that you know large deals are more complicated than small deals I just don't don't think that holds true at all I think there's an interesting angle though to this which uh, around the bolt-on thing which I quite like which is that in a sense sort of bolt-on deals force more of an operational mindset as opposed to a strategic mindset you're sort of forced as the CEO of, of that bolt-on of that business buying the bolt-on to engage with the people in your business who are going to actively have to manage and derive the benefits out of that transaction. And so that forces a more of a realistic view about where the opportunities might be. It's not the accountants that are driving those numbers. It's actually people on the ground saying, OK, I can see where the benefit from a customer uh, cross-selling opportunity might be, or I can see how that product mix might fit nicely into our own, or there may be a geographical aspect to the deal which we're not represented in very effectively. Or indeed, there might be an r capability that we don't have uh, or a service capability and approach that we don't have that's going to really complement the way we operate. So you very quickly get to a much more meaningful way of thinking about integration um, uh, where not only is it is it based on reality, not based on you know fictitious numbers, but it's also based on a bit of buy-in for the people who are fundamentally going to have to do the transaction.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing that uh, really resonated there for me with what you're saying Ben is that financial focus you get on a on a very high value deal and not just a high um high relative value but the the amount of um money I suppose the multiple you're paying on EBITDA the multiple of profit you're paying um and and the more financial focus is it takes away from the revenue opportunities or the the operational focus you're talking about effectively it's the <laughs> the degree of pressure you're putting on the business and actually if you're paying a decent multiple maybe you know eight times ten times there's plenty of room there to resource you know retention plans to take some risk in terms of revenue growth to invest in existing clients um, develop products whereas if you're paying a really large sum from the start you're under you know tight cost pressure maybe to deliver cost synergies um, that that means you don't get to focus externally on the market and, and grow the business
1: yeah coming to that multiple question there's one thing that I, th- I picked up on the article which I thought was fascinating and I won't talk about the specific deal but you know I, I've been involved in a in a private banking transaction in, in Singapore a while ago where the range of pricing was for the three final bidders was between 500 million and 1.5 billion dollars wow. um, US dollars this is and, and uh, you know a you look at that and say well how on earth can a set of uh, you know big four accountants come with a valuation that is that possibly that wide just doesn't that doesn't compute in my head at all uh, but what's really interesting is about you know, is that it, it they talk a bit about you know paying lots of money for the transaction you're know, the ones who obviously won that private banking deal in, in Singapore are the ones who paid the most right the one and a half billion uh, bidders for it, um, they, they turned it into the most successful integration that probably i have been ever part of in terms of mm-hmm. the, the delivery against the uh, the results that they were expecting, the, the cross-selling, the revenue synergies that they were achieving, and indeed the retention of really key employees that helped drive that through and helped drive the customer retention piece through. So it wasn't mm-hmm. about price ultimately, it was about a really sound uh, strategy and a really sound way of thinking about how the integration was going to work so again this is a this sort of slightly you know brutal method which says you know the more you pay the less your value you're going to get, get out of it which is the sort of the implication behind this article just doesn't actually make any sense right
0: uh, it's interesting though i, I mean i'm i think that you, you changed me there my, my gut feel has been that the more you pay the less value you're going to get out of it just a a classic bit of due diligence i was doing um for a european acquirer that you know we, we looked at this business we actually put in the highest offer in the round and and it was well below i think we offered around 300 million um compared to the the target was looking to sell for 600 million um it went off the market came back on six months later and somebody bought it for the 600 million within 12 months the whole management team of the acquirer was sacked by their shareholders for that deal because it was just an awful awful deal at the wrong price um and so I, I think I think I have been fixated on price, but I think you're, perhaps you're right. It's you know what what can you do with that company that you're bringing into the organisation? What can you deliver from it? Is, it, is maybe that was the key yeah, difference I mean, they I just th- failed to I, deliver.
1: I, I think that's I think that's good. That I you know good fair comment, and and maybe that you know the external market factors in this particular private banking deal were the ones that drove the success, you could definitely see you know, their branding decision was an extraordinary one and they also did this at a time when there was a lot of flow of money from Europe to Asia and in particular Singapore uh, around the private banking world, so maybe they were the beneficiaries of that so you know, again there is no counterfactual uh, behind it and timing might have just been very fortunate with regard to that, but, so, you know, you know, so it's, it's challenging right, it's definitely challenging um, the other thing I was going to just pick up on, and, and this is a bit where I think um, the guy makes a really good point around Primestone, which is one of the activist investors um, in, in, a, in a deal uh, which has been proposed by a company called Brentag, the world's largest chemical distributor to buy its number two peer, Univar. Um, Prime Minister thinks a bolt-on strategy would produce better returns. Uh, and the comment he makes is that, you know, expensive takeovers are often justified on the basis that they save costs or create revenue synergies, for example, in cross-selling. Um, he makes the point that it, there's a dependency on, on customers staying put. And I think, again, this comes back into the whole valuation uh, process uh, that accountants go into... Um, and they make a fundamental assumption that actually nothing's going to happen to the existing client base and you and I both know that that is just mm-hmm. nonsense in the, in the way that the employees are a mirror for customers certainly in high value businesses where there's a strong connection between uh, employees and their relationships and those customers, um, the minute you start you know thinking about integration and managing that level of uncertainty, it's inevitably going to have a consequence on service levels and on innovation uh, and all that performance stuff that's not really measured very effectively um, uh, as part of the customer process and you then will lose customers or at least you'll not be as successful with your customers as you were so he makes a really good point I think the other thing yeah. is, there's often an assumption made that cross-selling you know, a new product into uh, your existing client base is an easy thing to do You know, if I'm sitting there as a salesman, especially in some of these sectors, pharmaceuticals is a good example, where I'm almost as specialist, if you like, as the doctors that, or the R&D folk that produce the product in the first place. Why on earth would I damage my own personal brand brand and franchise by selling something that I'm not an expert in? I don't understand as well. It's just not. It's an anathema to me to go and do that. So actually, at the really fundamental base level of where this cross-revenue synergy comes comes from. It's about those individuals going to their customers and saying, have you thought about this? Where are you buying this from currently? Would you like to see an alternative opportunity? They're just not going to do it if they feel it's going to damage their own brand, uh, their own personal brand uh, and reputation in the marketplace.
0: I suppose thinking about that, what, what could I imagine you do differently is synergies when they're developed by a third party consultancy can tend to be mathematical. There'll be opportunities that you see in the the financial model where you're able to do some kind of arbitrage or some kind of actually we can grow the the average revenue per salesperson, reduce the sales force or, or double the revenue for existing sales force. Um, or you can do a cost synergy because we've now got this pool of fifty people rather than a pool of thirty people and we can take the utilization from eighty percent to ninety percent. And it just mathematically we can save five heads. I think the danger is for me is always the practical side of, of those um, things exactly as you're saying the practical side of actually cross-selling that product it just doesn't fit with the sales team or the practical side of reducing the, the staffing actually with holiday sickness and absence and the specialisations within the team you know, mathematically you can say five heads but in practice they just can't go because you can't save a you know, 10% of each person um, so maybe the, well, the yeah. advice there yeah
1: on that people side of things you know, show me an organisation large or small where the structure and if you like the sort of the, the the org structure and the and the chart around individual functions accurately shows what people really do in those functions and i'll I'll show you a unicorn it's just not realistic it's not real and so you're yeah. making some decisions on duplications of Um, of people in terms of the roles that they perform which are based on myth and legend you know most i mean i've been involved in far too many transactions where people's job descriptions were suddenly created for the purpose of the integration it's got got nothing to do with actually what they do on a day-to-day basis i just need to fill a box in a due diligence process right it's just nonsense and so you know the predication behind that which is that we've got you know 25 people sitting in a payable on one side and 15 sitting on the other side, and we only need 30 because actually it's just, a, it's, it's just based on, on, on nonsense, really, in my head. I mean. yeah,
0: yeah, the actual pra- I suppose pragmatism in terms of what we pragmatism in terms of the synergies, actually thinking through practically can you achieve this? and accepting that the information you're doing it from in the data room is just fundamentally flawed. It's that, you know, yeah, you've got 15 people with the same job title. That doesn't mean 15 people doing exactly the same thing. Um, it can be very different and the difference between the two organisations could be good so um, sure, right. if you were doing you're getting a big getting to deal
1: madness, sorry you get into more madness about the fact that you know we're going to do this on a hierarchical basis well you know again showing all structure that actually in reality looks like that magical pyramid it's not a real thing right so there'll be people <laughs> at the bottom of the organisation that you fundamentally that you get rid of because you don't know what they do but actually they they hold the keys to you know a bespoke system that's been there for 40 years and that no one else knows about it. but you know it just ha- doesn't happen to be written in the job description and they're not at the sort of senior level supposedly therefore to be adding the value that people think that they are
0: yeah so i think we're, we're saying i think my sense is we're positive slightly more optimistic about the potential for a, a large deal compared to a bolt-on um, and, and the relative challenges if you were let's say you know you're working in an organization which was planning uh, or at some stage through the process of a large deal what would you say to them what would you recommend um they thought about or they did that would make that that uh, you know transformational deal more successful than, than it might otherwise be
1: yeah so i so i think there's probably a few things for me that i i uh, that people who know who work with me will know that i'm totally obsessed about the first thing is that i i like to make the the deal as wide as possible in terms of the engagement levels across the business as soon as possible. So, you have to go from this very small little group of people that have been involved either for regulatory purposes or for secrecy or whatever other reasons, basically, um, with a sort of brain stress behind the deal. But you have to very quickly break that down into something much, much wider to get some engagement in that sort of senior management level of, of the organization to understand and feel that they are part of the planning, part of the deal, part of the opportunity that sits there. Um, And that's suddenly, that's a huge amount of effort Without question. And that's why lots of people don't do it. Um, But it's really important to me that actually you go from this situation where, um, you know, it's my vision as a CEO to it's our vision as an organisation. And we all have something to, you know, we all have a, a part to play in this process. And that starts to generate much more conversation and reality checks and a view about where the opportunities might lie. It also makes integration much easier because people are engaged early. Um so so that 's a, a really important step for me is to go from that very small to that much much larger, wider group uh, as possible. It also enables you know me as someone in from an integration um, director planning perspective. Um, to understand a bit more about the dynamics of that business, because you sort of need to get under the skin of who's really making decisions, who's really influential in this process, who do we need to engage with, um, who's got the brains or the, the, the innovation ideas that sit out there that might really actually um, transform this deal. Um, and so, you, you know, I've always talked about integration being, you know, a thousand conversations, and I think that's what I'm trying to enable in that from that narrow to very wide thing at a very early stage. So that would be my first one. What about you, Dave? What would you do? I was thinking, so, so
0: something similar, but building on yours, is it's not just, the, I suppose, the effort in communicating with people, but just what you consider communication, is it's not you're in the centre as a small team telling the organisation this is what's going to happen and the value created, it's being open and vulnerable to say actually we're doing this deal we want to hear from you, what are the opportunities what are the risks and that way you, you get true engagement from people because they actually, exactly as you were saying before feel part of the planning um, so for me it would be, uh, particularly if you spent billions of dollars of shareholders money it's, it, it's risky, it can feel um, difficult but actually going out to everyone and saying, we've done this, how do we make it the best deal possible? And being slightly vulnerable and open to challenge and open to alternative ideas. And for people to tell you that the, that the ideas you've come up with, the due diligence, might be um, not as good as some other other opportunities that are out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that goes to the whole business case thing. You know, I've talked about this before. You get handed hand mm. in a business case of 200 pages, there's no real consultation or internal involvement in that and it's sort of baked into the assumptions around the deal it always causes me to lose a bit more hair as you can see um uh so um it, it's interesting to me because i think you and i've done this a few times now where you you almost put that business case on the back burner somewhere and you say right we're going to spend three six months how long we could we've got going through a bit of a discovery process where actually we're engaging people at the right level at that very granular level to start talking about the opportunities the challenges uh, the way to deal with the transition from from two separate entities into a single entity, the priorities that sit behind that process um, the things that we haven't thought about Um, so again it's an engagement exercise but it also generates huge amounts of value uh, in terms of ideas and uh, and thoughts about the planning process and uh, fundamentally it generates a a cohort of people who are prepared to get involved and and will do the work, right? Ultimately, it's not the CEO and CFO or indeed you and he, me, though who do, who do the, the work around integration. It's, it's those people at a very ground level who are prepared to pick up the phone to their members who are prepared to do something on the side of their desks in terms of, process a change or, or technology change, you know if you don't get those people on board, nothing's going to happen right, we can be beautiful, can create beautiful documents but nothing's really going to take place so engaging them in that discovery process for me is really powerful as a way of uh, driving mm-hmm. it forward
0: I think that what you were describing there for me, the one word that came to mind was fun that would be my mm-hmm. arbiter for success if you go into an integration and you can see, are people having fun with this? How do you create an environment where people are enjoying themselves? Um, that's the, uh, the number one. And I suppose that's the thing I would try to create uh, in a similar situation.
1: Um, I think we've, we've sort of got to our half an hour uh, point, Dave. We weren't going to go any further than that because I think people tend to lose interest or indeed the will to live if you wander on for too much too much longer. Um, we're going to post this in the, the normal usual places. If you've got any comments or thoughts or feedback or things that you want us to comment on with, there's a wealth of stuff out there. Um, I think we might, we might look at um, a very significant consulting separation uh, in a week or so's time uh, for no prizes for, for guessing which one that's going to be. Um, so uh, we'll hope to get some different voices into the, into the room on that as well, but please come back to us. Please comment. Please um, uh, come up with some ideas of things that we should be, Talking about, and we'll blether on to your hearts or our hearts' content. So it's been really good. Love to see it. I hope the
0: dogs enjoyed it in the background too.
1: Indeed, they've, they've uh, been listening with great fascination.
0: Excellent. All right, speak to you soon. You can use